Well, hello, Abundant Life Church. How are we doing today? It's so great to be with you guys. So glad that you are with us for this third part of our narrative series. And we're looking at these different stories. And, and I do want to invite you to get your Bibles out. If you brought it with you, you're going to be in John chapter 2. So if you've got a physical Bible, uh, you're going analog on us. It's the New Testament, four books in, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you've got an app, a Bible app on your, your device or phone, I encourage you to get that out. Scroll down to John 2. And we want you to see this for yourself as we get into the text today. Also encourage you, get your program out. You'll see a spot there to take notes. And we just invite you to do this. Write down uh, what you hear. Write down the things that, uh, that you're, you're really thinking about and encourage this to be a study throughout the week for you as you write down some of these notes and maybe some, some key verses or key ideas uh, that you need to focus on this week and, and maybe even with a, a life group or a small group or however you want to do that. We've been looking at stories in, in this series and today I want to talk about the story of the church. And the story of the church is really the book of Acts. And so you get to the, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then you get to the book of Acts. And Acts is basically what happens now. Jesus died, he's resurrected, now what? And that's the, the story of the book of Acts. But I want to go just before that story. I want to talk about what Jesus did uh, to transition them to get ready for that. How did he help them move from where they were uh, into something new, into a new model? And this is the story we're going to look at today. And this is how, how we get to this idea of the church. But here's what, what's hard. Whenever you discuss the church, you're discussing people like you and me. People who have all of our different experiences and, and nuances and ideas and opinions and perspectives and just the way that we're wired. And, and we bring all that together, all that weirdness, right? We're in Portland, all the weirdness. And you put it together and you go, that's church. And that's why we wonder sometimes, why, why, was, why was this weird? Why was Because you know, it's people. It's people like you and me. And, and we all have got our issues and our baggage. And we bring it together. And it's a church. And it can really be a beautiful thing. But there's a lot of diversity there. And so I came across a website this week that I thought was rather amusing. Uh, it, it's a website. This is a real thing. They create soap for different types of people. And so they customize soap on, you know, however you are wired, uh, a soap just for you. Let me give you a few examples of these soaps, and maybe this is something that might, that might fit you. Uh, here's the first one, a soap for introverts. It's unscented because seriously, you're not going anywhere anyway, right? <laughs> All the introverts in the room are like, yep, that's true. Can't wait to get home. All right, we, we love you. Glad you're here. Uh, another soap, soap for geeks. Any geeks in the room? Uh, this is Wi-Fi scented. Uh, no one else understands the scent. <laughs> if you're a geek, you understand that joke. All right. Next soap. Soap for lefties. Any lefties in the room? <laughs> Smells like the weird scissors. Uh, can't you like be normal or something? My wife's a lefty and I'm constantly amazed at her, her lack of ability to use just a normal pair of scissors. I don't understand it. It doesn't logically make sense. Or finally, uh, soap for the middle child. Any middle children here? Uh, largely invisible scent. Go ahead and dye your hair purple. No one will notice. <laughs> so now, how, however you relate with that today, we are so glad you're here and, and so glad that you are joining us to be a part of the church. It is a beautiful thing. It's a, an interesting thing. And we're gonna talk about how we got here. So if you're in your Bibles, we're gonna go to John chapter two. I wanna tell you a story today, beginning in verse one. That's a famous story. It's one of those stories, even if you would say, hey, I'm, I don't know if I consider myself a Christian. I don't know about the whole Jesus thing yet. I don't, have the, I don't know about the Bible thing yet. Uh, even if that's where you are, and we're so glad that you're here if you're still checking this thing out. But, but you probably have heard of this story. 
It's that well known of a story, even if you, you're not really familiar with the details. And yet, I also know as Christians, we, we know this story, but we, we miss some of the, the big details of it. And, and I would like to suggest some ways that we can apply this story in our lives today. So we're looking at what's known as Jesus' first miracle. And this is John chapter 2, begin reading in verse 1. It says, On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana at Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. This begins totally normal. You've got Jesus, his mom's there, his friends are there. They're at a wedding for someone obviously close to them, and everything's going great. Verse 3, when the wine was gone, oh, it's one of those kind of parties, you know what I mean? When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me, Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. Do you know that Jesus had family tensions, just like you do? His mom and him getting a little conversation. Hey, this is what you should do. And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why, 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 are you, why are you telling me about this? His mother said to the servants, I love this, uh, do whatever he tells you. Jesus says, hey, it's not my hour. It's not, my, it's not, it's not for me. Jesus is like, oh, okay, whatever. Hey, do whatever he says. Just, just whatever he says next, just do it. Uh, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Now, Jesus' mom comes to him with an interesting suggestion, uh, an interesting idea. She says, there's no more wine. And you might wonder, what, what does this imply? It's kind of like when my wife comes to me and says, we need to take out the trash. What does that mean? This part of we needs to take out the trash, right? Husbands, you know what I'm talking about. And you're like, yep, got it. Okay, I will go ahead and take out the trash. Thank you for the observation of the trash needed to be taken out. This is what his, his mom is doing. She's basically coming to him and saying, hey, um, they ran out of wine and you're the only one who can bend the laws of nature. So go ahead and let's do something about that. And Jesus says to her, whoa, whoa. If I do this, it begins the clock. If I do this, Everyone starts watching me. Everyone's aware of who I am and what I'm doing. And, and literally the road to the cross will begin in this moment. And so he says, well, I don't think it's my time yet. My time has not yet come. And, and yet there's these six stone water jars around. Now that's an uh, interesting detail of the story. Why were they there? Do you notice that? Well, we just kind of keep reading what he does with them. But why are there six stone water jars just happened to be there at this wedding? What are they there for? Well, there's a small detail that is, is said. It's in verse six. We just read it, but you might have missed it. It says this. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. Now, here's where we have to do a little bit of cultural study because this is unlike what we have today. When we think of washing, we think, of, okay, they're, they're running their hands under a sink. They got antibacterial soap and they're gonna get their hands clean before they eat. It's not what this is. This is ceremonial Washing. This is a type of washing where you physically wash your hands in a certain way and it makes you spiritually clean. Now, I don't think we have soap today that makes that claim, uh, but this is what they were doing. And so they would wash in a certain way with a certain tradition to it. And if they did it right, they thought, hey, I'm now spiritually clean and I'm, I'm ready to worship God. I'm, I'm in this connection with God because of this hand washing. It was a huge tradition for them. And what you have to understand is Jesus didn't agree with this tradition. Jesus didn't follow this tradition. In fact, if you read elsewhere in the Gospels, you find him arguing with these religious leaders over this tradition of how they would use these ceremonial jars. Let me, let me show you an example of this argument. This comes from Matthew chapter 15. And here's what Jesus says in this argument with them. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Isn't that a great way to put it? 
I mean, who can defy the tradition of the elders? I mean, there's huge weight to this. What are they talking about? They don't wash their hands before they eat. That's the tradition of the elders, that they don't ceremonially wash their hands the right way. This is a big deal. Now, you might think, based on the way they present this, that they come to Jesus and you might expect Jesus to go, oh, I am, I am so sorry. I had no idea that I offended you guys. I will, I will reprimand my disciples. We'll get right on that. We, we will do it, right? You might expect that, unless you know Jesus a little bit better than that. And here's what he says. Jesus replied, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? Jesus is like, here's the line in the sand. You're on that side. I'm on this side. I'm not going to do it. Because you have lost perspective. You have come to believe that all of this is about this tradition instead of understanding the bigger thing. This is about me. He is repurposing a religious item and he's going to do it on on purpose because he does not like what this has become, what this has come to represent. Now, before we get to what he does with these jars, we have to get into the same mindset that they would have been in. That, so we can react the way they would have reacted to the original audience of the story. So I was trying to think of what is a religious item that we might have a certain feeling about, right? And this is tricky because truthfully, uh, there's not a ton around here that would categorize, uh, fall in this category. And that's a good thing, uh, but it makes it hard for this illustration. So I'm gonna do my best to get you to feel a little bit offended as they might have been offended, right? Here we go. Imagine if I bring the baptistry over and we put it right in front of the stage here. And in the service, we start baptizing people and we're, we're singing and we're, we're, you know, it's crazy. We're celebrating. It's an amazing thing. You're watching transformation. These people coming out, they're high five and they're pumped. They're so excited. It's an amazing experience. Then worship service, you know, it ends. We all go to the lobby. You realize, oh, I forgot my Bible. So you walk back in to get your Bible and what you see next horrifies you. You see children swimming in the baptistry. They've got swimsuits on. They've got floaties on. One of them even does a cannonball off the stage into the baptistry. Now, here's the question. Does it bother you? Now, if we're honest, some of us would say, yeah. Why? Why would that bother you? Well, the the thing that probably is emerging is you go, well, that's not what that's for. You don't use it for that. So imagine you're indignant. You're going to set these kids straight. And so you're like, you know what? I'm going to put a stop to this. This is the house of the Lord. No one's going to swim in the baptistry in the house of the Lord. So you decide you're going to walk up the aisle. You're going to give these kids the business. So you start walking right up. And just as you get right up to the baptistry, before the words can even escape your mouth, you see Jesus pop out of the water, laughing and cracking up with the kids. And you're like, oh, whoa, Jesus, I'm sorry. I, I didn't see you there. Uh, Carry on, carry on, have a great time. It's it's great, you know. I could totally picture Jesus turning a baptistry into a swimming pool with some kids. I mean, I could just see him doing it. And I would love the reaction of, of us trying to explain to him, Jesus, that's not what that's for. Let me give you another example. Maybe this one will hit a little closer to home. So same same thing. You leave your Bible, you come back in to get it, and you see there's some people huddled around the stage. You can't tell what they're doing. You walk up, you're like, what's going on? You realize they're all eating the communion tray. They're just popping those little suckers in, drinking the juice, having a great time, right? Does it bother you? 
Why? Because it's not what that's for. Now imagine you see Jesus in the circle. He's throwing them back and he's having a great time, right? I mean, this is what we have going on in this story. You have the religious people going, Jesus, you cannot use these for anything other than ceremonial hand washing. Now, with that in mind, let's keep reading and see what Jesus does. Verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. Totally normal request. Servants are thinking, oh, okay, I didn't know that we were going to fill these tonight because it's a wedding party. But hey, if we need to have a worship service, let's do it. So they're, they're ready. Okay, we'll fill them, right? So it says, so they filled them to the brim. Important detail to remember. Then he told them, now, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. <laughs> Here's where it gets really weird. So these guys are filling the water up, totally normal. They understand. And then Jesus says, now serve it to your boss. Uh, I'm sorry, what did you say? Serve it to him. Like in a cup? Yeah, yeah. Give it to him to drink. Now at this point, you realize these guys are probably like exchanging glances with one another like, I'm not doing that. I need this job. Frank, you do it. I need this job. You know, like, you got to do it. I'm not doing this. And Jesus says, serve it to him. You can imagine, right? So one of them had to explain, hey, Rabbi, um, evidently no one told you um, what these are for. You don't drink out of them. And we're certainly not going to give our boss a drink out of these water. These are for washing your hands, not for drinking. And Jesus says, serve it to the master of the banquet. So they did. Verse 9. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from. That's a hilarious line. Because if he had, he would never have put it inside his mouth right? He had no idea where it came from. And, and though the servants who had drawn the water knew, and they would take that little detail to their grave. They're not telling anybody. <laughs> then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. It's a weird story. It's a strange story. It's a, it's, a, it's a famous story. We talk about this story. Oh, you can turn water into wine, right? But there's some details in the story that get even weirder when you stop and you think about it. Now you can do some math here because what, what are we, how, how much are we talking? And there's enough details in the story to answer this, okay? It says that there are six stone water jars, each hold 20 to 30 gallons, and they're filled to the brim. Let's assume maximum capacity of each of these six. That would be 180 gallons of water that becomes wine. Well, on average, about a gallon of wine would equal five bottles as we know it today. So if you're quick to do the math, here's what that means. Jesus made 900 bottles of wine at this party. You ever been to a party with 900 bottles of wine? If yes, come invite me because that sounds awesome, right? 900 bottles, not just wine, 900 bottles of the best wine they had probably ever tasted. I mean, this is a ludicrous amount. 900 bottles of wine after they drank all the wine that was allocated for the party. I mean, this is insane. Jesus is like his own winery here. He's like, hey, check this out. You know, like, I imagine these guys are trying to bottle this stuff up because there's no way they're drinking all of that wine in one shot. 
Now here's what gets funny. Just give a modern day parallel, right? So let's say you could bottle up this wine. You could sell it for $50 a bottle. And we'll just give a reason what's a nice bottle of wine, $50 a bottle. That would be a gift that Jesus just gave of $45,000. So we have to understand, this is not just like, oh, there's a little couple cups on the table, he converted it. He does this massive, humongous moment. And, and you look at this and you're going, what on earth are you doing? This is absurd. This is ludicrous. Why did he do it? Now you might think, well, this is just some cheap parlor trick. You know, Jesus is just trying to get attention. He's just trying to go viral. And so he's just doing weird stuff. You know, Jesus the magician. But that's not what's going on here. There's something incredibly significant happening. There's an author named Brexy Cavey, and he, he summarizes this story, and I think he does it well. Here's what he says. Through his first miracle, Jesus intentionally desecrates a religious icon. He purposely chooses these sacred jars to challenge the religious system by converting them from icons of personal purification into symbols of relational celebration. Jesus takes us from holy water to wedding wine, from legalism to life, from religion to relationship. So Jesus takes an entire system that had all of it, the details worked out. Here's how you get to God. Here's how you get right by God. And he says, break it down and come to me. And, and you can just imagine how this would have gone over. See, here's what's funny. This is a scandalous story for us today. And, and why? Because Jesus made alcohol. I mean, literally Christians get spun out by this story. Like, let's pretend that story's not in there. That's not the scandal of the story. The scandal of the story is how he repurposes a religious icon. That's the scandal. That's the part the original audience would have been like, whoa, I am not okay with this one. Jesus, you have gone too far. You think you're the center of all of that? And how quickly our gatherings become about tradition, right? How quickly when we gather in the name of God, it becomes about a list of things to do. And do it this way and don't do it that way. And, and as long as we all agree on how it should be done, then we know who the new people are. And we can reprimand them. And we can let them know you didn't do it right. We wonder why guests come to our church and go, whoa, uh, what, what is this? This is weird. Because we, we so quickly become about these traditions. And we have these beliefs and we have these ways of doing church. And you do it this way. And if you don't do it that way, clearly something's wrong with you. But the church is not a community around a set of traditions. It's not a community around a set of beliefs. It's a community around a person, the person of Jesus Christ. That is what the church is. And in this moment, Jesus is beginning that transition to say, it is no longer the reasons you gather are not the reasons you used to gather. It's now you will gather about me. I'm gonna be the focus of your gathering now. He's rewriting the story. Now, let's think about church, and church has lots of different aspects to it, but let's just talk about the, the weekend service on a Sunday, just to give us an easy illustration. Have you ever thought about why you come to a service on the weekend? If I asked you to write down a reason, why, do you, why are you here today? What, what would you say? Now, for some of you, you might go, I, I don't know, I could put it into words. Like, what, what would be the reason? Maybe you have lots of reasons. I suspect we'd get a bunch of different answers if we actually collected them. I come for the, the teaching, I come for the worship, I come for the community, I come to see my friends, I come to, you know, whatever. You might have all sorts of different answers to that. And, and yet what I've noticed is there's something so beautiful in the gathering corporately of the church. 
Now, God will meet you privately. You don't have to be around other Christians in order to see and experience God. But the Holy Spirit will uniquely show up when we gather in community in his name. And so I, I listed just a few of the ways that I have seen God show up uniquely in a worship service. And one of the, as I look back and I go, man, I, I love experiencing God in this way because I can't get this when I'm by myself. I love watching baptisms. I love watching someone that I might not know their story, but I realize in that moment, there's a transformation being represented. That the, they used to be this person, now they're this person. And, and I love getting to experience that. Getting to see that and go, wow, God, you are moving in that person's life. I love watching people respond to a service differently than me. Watching some people respond you know, passionately through singing. And go, wow, I don't, I don't have that same reaction to this song. Or watching them take notes of a certain part in the message and go, oh, that part's really speaking to them. It encourages me to see things that I might not see otherwise. To experience God in ways that I might not be experiencing him. But I see it in the people around me. I love the conversations that happen before and after services. When you run into people you haven't seen in a while. Oh, hey, how's it going? How's that? And you, you sense this, this wider network of people gathering in the name of Jesus. I love taking communion together. I love when we commune as a community in our focus of Jesus. To go, hey, we're going to remember every single time we gather as a group of people that we're gathering because of what you have done on the cross for us, Jesus. I love experiencing that with you guys. I love doing that in the community together. I love experiencing unity through diversity. You see, the church should be that place where you look around the room and you don't like everybody. Because one of the only reasons why churches don't often grow is because they only invite people who they like, who look like them, act like them, think like them, vote like them, behave just like them. And they'll say, as long as you're in this group, you can be part of our church. That's not church. Church is where you start to go, whoa, I, man, do you see what that guy posted on Facebook this week? I can't believe his opinion on that. Then you see him in the hallway and you're like, hey, good, good to see you. And you have those emotions, Raul, you know? See, the church should be the place where you go, the only reason I'm sitting in the same row as that person is because of Jesus Christ. That there's nothing else that the world would say would, would bring us together, but Jesus is greater than any of these differences. See, so often we have this view of the church should be that place where we all agree on every biblical point and every nuance. And I've met so many good-intentioned Christians that want this and go, can't we all just agree on all these? And I've had to explain to them, that's not a church, that's a cult. If you are a part of a place where there is no disagreement, there's no division, there is no sense of different perspectives, you're not a part of a church. Churches where you go, wow, that person's different than me and I'm gonna have to learn how to coexist. I'm gonna have to learn how to let them speak into my life. And then what you start to learn is, wow, you're not as different as I thought you were. Well, all these things that I thought were so different, yet it's the church that brought you together. It's Jesus that unifies us in ways that nothing else can unify us. That's what I love experiencing. I love hearing what God said to other people. I had something happen early on in my preaching ministry that was really weird to me. Is I, would, I would preach a sermon that I would get done and I'd be talking to someone and they would say, oh, Jeremy, when you said this, they quote me, that was so moving to me today. And I'd be thinking back and I'd be going, I never said that. And it was a really weird feeling. And it happened to me often enough where I started to realize if I'm going to call myself a person of integrity, I have to correct them. I have to tell them I didn't say the thing you're attributing me saying. 
And so I started trying this. They would come to me and say, Jeremy, when you, oh, I wrote it down. When you said this, and I'm like, um, that's not in my notes. I never, I never said that. And I would just watch them just deflate. Like, oh, okay. And it's happened frequently enough. I started praying about it, going, God, what's the deal? What, what am I supposed to do here? Because I'm having these people say things to me that I never said, and, and I don't know how to handle the situation. And in that journey, I felt like God said something to me, not audibly, but very clearly said this, Jeremy, you're not the only one talking. Hmm. I can get on board with that. So now if you come up to me after a service, you say, Jeremy, when you said this, I'll just go, that's great. And then I'll go write it down because it's probably brilliant and it's not in my notes. You know what I mean? Like that's, yeah, I totally remember saying that to you, right? But I love that this is what God does. The Holy Spirit cannot be contained. The Holy Spirit cannot be limited to any one speaker. But when you gather around the person of Jesus in the community of the Holy Spirit, guess what? You're gonna hear things. That's why it's so important for you to take notes, to write down what the Holy Spirit is uniquely saying to you. It might not be literally something that comes out of my mouth, but you might hear it. And you gotta write it down and be available. Now, one caveat to that. If you feel like the Holy Spirit tells you something crazy during one of my sermons, Verify it with scripture and verify it with other Christians in community, okay? So sometimes people are like, oh, clearly you were telling me I gotta go to divorce my wife. It's like, nope, not, that was not God telling you that. So verify it with, with scripture, with community. But the reality is the Holy Spirit can do whatever he wants to do. I, I can't limit that. But there's a part of gathering together where he moves in unique ways. And I love being a part of that. There's a verse that I think captures the weekend uh, experience so well, a, a gathering of what the church should be. Colossians 3, 16 says this. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. What a beautiful picture. As we gather together, let the message of Christ dwell among us richly. A beautiful picture of the church. If you want to grow in your faith, you're, you're going to have to own that personally. But if you really want it to holistically grow, it's going to happen in community. Your faith will grow best in community. Not will happen one-on-one, it happens throughout the week, but when you gather together, you should feel energized. You should feel life being breathed into you as the Spirit uniquely moves through the church. Now, let me change gears a little bit and ask you a tricky question. And we're still getting to know each other a little bit. So I feel like this is, this is gonna be a helpful question. Uh, here's the question. How often should you shower? You ever thought about the answer to this? How often should you shower? Now, here's what I know, that we have all different answers to this question. And so let's play a little game just for fun, just to get to know each other a little bit better. Uh, no matter what campus you're watching on, Sandy, Vancouver, online, encourage you to participate with us. Uh, so here's what we're gonna do. If you shower regularly, more than once a day. You are the multi-shower day people. Raise your hand, okay? Raise your hand and look around. These are the people you wanna sit by next week, okay? <laughs> they smell fantastic, always, okay? Now, if you would say, not multiple times, my regular routine is once a day, put your hand up, okay? Look around, all right? It's probably the majority of us. Now, so that's long enough to know there's a third category of people you would say you shower less than once a day. And here's the deal. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because we don't want you to lift your arms. Okay? <laughs> Just being truthful with you. Just being truthful. Uh, I have a friend who tells me in Arizona, he's like, I don't sweat, so I don't need to shower. That's weird. Okay, whatever. But 
Here's the point I want to make to you, okay? No matter how many times you shower today, you probably need to shower tomorrow. Safe, right? No matter how many times, you can go, I'm going to shower 10 times a day. Awesome. You need a hobby, but awesome, okay? <laughs> you probably need a shower tomorrow. Do you have to shower tomorrow? No. Is there a rule about it? No. It's just probably a good idea, right? It's probably a good idea to make that a regular part of your routine. And I don't care which soap you use, just pick a soap. Just any, any soap is good. Just make that a regular part of your routine. So I think church is the same way. How often should I go to church? I don't know, like a lot. Like probably a good idea, you know. What's the rule? There's no rule. It's just you should probably make it a regular part of your life if you value it. I, I value taking a shower, so I make it a regular part of my routine. If you value the church, you should make it a regular part of your routine, right? And, and yet we get so weird about it. I've had people say, well, I went to church last, last two weekends, so we're going to take next weekend off. What? It's like saying, I showered twice today, so I think I'm good for tomorrow. Like, that's just a weird idea to me. Like, what? Okay, what? wouldn't you also want it next weekend? Like, that'll probably be a good thing too. Now, again, life happens and, you know, all that's fine. But, but it's the spirit behind it to go, well, if you value it, why would you not make it a key part of your life? I love the way the theologian, James K. Smith, says it. He says, learning to love God takes practice. You think you're just going to know how to be a Christian? You're just going to know how to faithfully follow God in the midst of, of your world, in the midst of your career and your family and your friends? You're just going to know how to do it perfectly? No, it's going it's to take practice. Well, how do you practice? You gather with other Christians. You start going, hey, let's, let's figure out how to do this better. Let, let's, let's keep figuring this out as we go. And, and yet, let me just ask a challenging question. What, what does it take for you to miss a Sunday? What criteria would you go? Well, yeah, we'll, go, we'll skip for that. Is it when the weather is bad? Yeah, I'm not getting out there on that. That's just too crazy. Maybe when the weather's good. I'm not sitting in a church building on a day like this. Let's get out. And you start, you know, realizing your criteria. Maybe it's when your sports team is on. Well, I'd love to go to church today, but they're playing today, you know. Or now it's become when your kid's sports team is playing. And we go, oh, I'd love to, but, you know, little Johnny's got it. Well, you scheduled little Johnny for a league that meets on Sundays. So what does that mean? And, and maybe, well, I'm just too tired. Well, what were you doing the night before? See, I don't mean this to judge you, just to say these help you see the criteria of what you expect from the church. What do you expect to get from this experience? And I would hope you'd go, I wanted this to be such a regular part of my life because it is life giving to me. Not because you're checking something off a list or you feel like you have to, but because you want to. James Smith goes on to say it like this. We are what we love. And our love is shaped, primed, and aimed by liturgical practices, worship practices, that take hold of our gut and aim our heart to certain ends. You are what you love. The world's gonna get you to fall in love with all kinds of things that will not give you life. The church should be the place where you are redirected to that which will give you life, to, to redirect your love to that which will be life-giving to you in return. And we go, yeah, this should be a regular part of our life. So what is it that you love? What is it that you value? How are you investing yourself into that? Here's a question I'd like us to, to consider as a church. How are you committing yourself to be reshaped by the church? Again, there's no right answer to this. It's just a question. How are you committing yourself 
to be reshaped by the church, to, to come here with the expectation of, God, you will uniquely move in this experience, that you will rewire me, you will reform my loves, you will redirect me, you will help me practice living differently if I follow you. So the church is that place where we should be molded into people of a different kingdom. Well, the, the scriptures talk about that, but how do, you, how do you live as a citizen of a different country? Well, you have to practice that. You have to have people who encourage you to have different values, to have different beliefs, to have different ways of living in the world. See, as Christians, we should be holy and prophetic interruptions to the dysfunctional norms around us, where Jesus uses us to upset the, the, the status quo of stuff. He goes, you know what? My church is gonna stop that. My church is gonna move us away from that. My church is gonna be the one to show people there's an alternative. Well, how do we become that? You have to start thinking differently. You have to start being wired differently and that happens as a church. It happens as we grow together and we allow the Holy Spirit to move and to shape and to encourage us. And we go, all right, what is it you want us to do? If you keep reading in John chapter two, right after the story of Jesus turning the water into wine, you get to Jesus going to the temple. And the temple is where everybody went. That's where you meet God. That's where God lives. And if you want to experience God, you go to the temple. And Jesus went to the temple and he got in another argument with religious leaders. I wanna show you what he said, because this comes right after the story we just looked at. Here's what he says about the temple in John 2, verse 19. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. It's a huge idea that John is developing early in his gospel. You no longer need a building. You no longer need tradition. You no longer need the right set of beliefs. You need Jesus. That Jesus himself will be the thing that we gather around. We are not a community around tradition. We're a community around a person. And this is what Jesus is establishing throughout the scriptures. I love the way one of the early church fathers said it. This is St. John Chrysostom. He said, just as the woman was fashioned while Adam slept, so also when Christ had died, the church was formed from his side. Literally, he dies and creates this new way of experiencing God. And then when he is brought back to life, the church comes to life and we now gather in the name of Jesus. That's why if you read what else John wrote in the end of the Bible, you get to the book of Revelation. And John, the same guy that's writing about Jesus, turning water into wine and repurposing a religious item. John, who talks about Jesus going to the temple and, and saying that he was the temple. He, he writes about a vision that God gives him of what heaven will be like. And, and he's you know, told, write this down. And here's what John says in Revelation 21 about the temple when it comes to heaven. It says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. John goes, we don't need it anymore. There's no need for the temple. We have the church. We have the people of a person. We have the people who gather in the name of Jesus who is alive and well and is moving as we gather in his name. So I wanna close with one final detail of the story. It's a detail that's easy to overlook and I, I love this detail. But when the, the master of the banquet tastes the wine that Jesus had, had made, he says something that I have found to be so true of an experience with Jesus. Here's what he says, verse 10. You 
have saved the best till now. As you follow Jesus, as you experience Jesus, that is what you'll experience. Wow, Jesus, I thought it was good before, but you have saved the best till now. Now this should happen for all eternity. This should be a description of heaven, but it should also be a description of every single time we gather in the name of Jesus. Oh, Jesus, you have saved the best till now. We cannot believe what you are doing in our midst and we value it. Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, we want to gather not because of traditions, not because of routine, not because of all the right beliefs that we all have to agree on, but we gather in your name. We gather in who you are because you meet us here in this place and you are doing something new. You have saved the best till now. That all the ways we thought we had to get to you, we thought we had to do this and that to be right by you and yet we have come to realize none of that matters, that we can experience you. You have done it all and you invite us now to follow you and that when we do this in community, when we gather in your name with other believers who look differently and act differently and think different thoughts than us, God, then you do something supernatural. Then you move in ways that we cannot anticipate, we cannot control, and we cannot imagine. And so God, as we gather today as your church, May our expectation be on being reshaped by you, reformed into people of a different kingdom. And would you send us out into the world as those people? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.